Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 45. Ed Hoffman never heard a busy street like that. All of us take so much for granted. I was in my late 20s when I got the news one day. My cousin Michael had passed, rather suddenly. It was a heart attack. He was only a few years older than I was, but his fragile body had finally given out. He was severely handicapped, but only in a physical sense. He suffered from cerebral palsy, a traumatic birth with a cord wrapped around his neck, precious oxygen gone for precious minutes, just enough to alter a life forever. Michael Bell was his name. I didn't know Michael all that well. My parents moved from Ashtabula, Ohio when I was just a year old. He was born and raised and died right in that area. The rest of his immediate family, that is my cousins and my aunt, were born there and still live there today. It's home for them. But what I did know of Michael, I learned at a young age in the few summer moments that mom and dad brought me back to Ohio. They did that to remain connected with the family that we had left behind as they themselves began a new season of living in Florida in the 1960s. What I knew and experienced about Michael in those few summer visits had a profound effect on me. What he did in his short 30 years or so on this earth taught me even more. Taught me a lot about personal determination when you have a handicap. And all of us have some form of handicap. From the mildest of things to the most severe, like Michael. He taught me that you can still make a difference. You don't have to succumb. In fact, you can thrive, especially when you get the right support around you. And speaking of the right support, watching my aunt and my cousins, that is his siblings, it would really reinforce how important to me that love is to the development of a child and what unconditional love and true affection can do to help someone reach their true potential, no matter what their version of a personal struggle may be. That was Michael's gift to me. That was their gift to me. Michael could hardly speak, and he could hardly walk except with the aid of thick braces and arm crutches, sometimes completely confined to a wheelchair. The physicality of his body would immediately impact you as he came into sight. God had twisted it like a pretzel, almost into a knot. Nothing worked, mechanically speaking, like it should, and yet he had this soft, kind, inviting face and expressions that exploded with effort beautiful effort, the constant but quiet kind of determined effort that it took for him to communicate, to do almost anything physically. He was hardly understandable in his speech, as God had gotten hold of the muscles that worked his tongue, too, and they were as twisted as those that connected to his thigh or to his wrist. I suppose my aunt and my cousins understood him more clearly 
But to me, when I saw him, because I was like a summer visitor at camp, it sometimes felt like it was a foreign language for me, and I needed help in understanding him. Their love and compassion and daily practice allowed them to understand Michael's language, something I would never master because I wasn't around him enough to get good at it. But in giving Michael his fate in this world, God had stopped short when it came to handicapping this beautiful boy's beautiful mind. Perhaps only the mental scars of his condition would be in there with the rest of what was something pretty spectacular. He was more than smart. He ended up achieving valedictorian status in high school. You know, he could hardly talk, and he did this. Michael was determined despite the challenge, and his mom and his brother and his sister and others too were determined to help him achieve as much as his God-given talents would allow him to achieve. And like so many things in nature, his mind and his other senses worked overtime to compensate for what his body was not capable of doing. They all nurtured him, and at times they all sheltered him. They understood how fragile he could be and how far he could go. They put aside a lot personally to make his aspirations become a reality and make his life better than it otherwise would be, given his circumstance. They are, above and beyond all else, good and loving people. Not only did Michael excel academically, but he went on to coach the men's varsity baseball team. His younger brother Russ was a star athlete in high school, and they were inseparable. His sister Lisa is a resident saint. My other cousin Dana, about the same age as Michael, from my other aunt, well, he and Michael were close too. They all loved baseball. It was a boyhood obsession for all three of them, Michael, Russ, and Dana, as it should be for boys those ages. Dana grew up in Ashtabula before he went on to college at Purdue. He never looked back. But it was a shock to all of us when we heard the news that Michael had passed suddenly. For me, it was my first experience with a family member that died at such a young age. I would experience it again in a different way years later with the loss of my oldest son. Today, the story is about a man who was a witness to the JFK assassination. He is a deaf mute, and that made for a challenge every moment of his life. He and Michael had much in common, fighting harder to make a life and make up for what God had decided would not be theirs on this green earth. Quietly inspirational. It's not surprising that I like the story of Ed Hoffman. Like so many other important aspects of the JFK assassination, though, the Ed Hoffman story has been buried over the years, covered with assassination dust, so to speak. Even though it's been in plain daylight ever since the day of the assassination, the day that Ed Hoffman witnessed the unthinkable and the day that he earnestly tried to tell the police and the FBI, and the day that the cacophony associated with the tragedy would drown out the desperate utterances of a deaf mute. It was not until the mid-1980s when Jim Mars interviewed him for his book Crossfire that Hoffman's story began to become more widely known. The publication of Crossfire helped, and then in 1993, the author Bill Sloan published JFK, Breaking the Silence. 
the publication produced a much more detailed account of what Ed Hoffman saw and the events which took place after the date of the assassination, including a meeting in 1967 where the FBI finally was able to engage in a serious conversation with Hoffman about what he had seen, and thus the first acknowledgement by the authorities related to Ed Hoffman. So let's get right down to it and tell the rest of the story. Hoffman was 26 years old at the time of the assassination, and had it not been for a chipped tooth that occurred that morning at work, Hoffman may have never been thrust into this role in history. Hoffman worked at Texas Instruments in the machine shop, and around 10.30 on November 22nd, while taking his coffee break, he chipped his tooth on a large piece of ice. Apparently, it was severe enough that he made plans right away to leave the office and get over to see the dentist. The dentist was located in Grand Prairie, a town located west of Dallas. In order to get there, Ed proceeded to drive his car right through the heart of Dallas, staying on U.S. Highway 75. Ed had no plans to watch the parade that day. It was just a normal work day for him. But the drive through Dallas and some of the activities along the freeway caught his attention, and it dawned on him that the president's motorcade must be coming through. Really, it was a spur-of-the-moment thing for Ed, but at the last minute, realizing that he might have a chance to actually see the president or part of the motorcade, he decided to make a turn that would put him onto the northbound lanes of Stedman's Freeway. And in true happenstance, it would put him in a position, in just a moment, right there close to the same ramp that the presidential motorcade was supposed to use to get onto the Stemmons Freeway after the motorcade was to exit from Dealey Plaza, where they would then go for the final leg of the trip over to the trademark. Ed knew this general area, and so he decided that one of the overpasses that he was familiar with would make a good place from which to try and see the president. In fact, he knew of one spot in particular that, if he could get situated right there on Stemmons Freeway, it might be possible to see the president passing right underneath him, or at least close nearby. It was the entrance onto the freeway itself. Stemmons is farther west than the triple underpass, but while not as close, you can still see a good bit of the action in the plaza from there. He got lucky. There was nobody with a similar idea. As soon as he came upon the spot, he found a good place to pull his car over and park on the shoulder. Heading northbound, he would be on the extreme left shoulder of a busy expressway that had five lanes of traffic. He would end up getting out and walking about 100 feet from where he was able to park his car. From there, he was able to walk to the very spot on the edge of the overpass that he had been thinking about a spot that would put him just above the entrance ramp where the president's car would eventually enter the Stemmons as it sped away from Dealey Plaza and entered the freeway. It was a position that was some 100 to 125 yards away from the closest section of the picket fence that was behind the grassy knoll. Now situated, Ed would recall that the time was somewhere between 12.10 and 12.15. This really was a spot with a wide-range view of the whole west end of that part of town, and more importantly that day, the railroad yards that sat just behind the plaza on the north side. And Ed was happy that he had been so impulsive, and as he was beginning to get himself settled, Ed began to watch the expanse of this whole event 
as the crowds readied themselves for the motorcade to arrive. In the silence that Ed lives in, his eyes were especially drawn to wherever he saw activity, and it wasn't long before something quite interesting caught his eye. It was activity that was taking place behind the wooden fence, the wooden fence that was behind the grassy knoll. It was there that he saw two men. They were busy, busy doing something, but at that moment he couldn't tell what it was that they were doing. It did look like they were engaged in a pretty serious conversation. One of the things that caught Ed's attention is that the two men were dressed so differently. One was neatly attired in a dark business suit, complete with white shirt, necktie, and black hat. The other wore striped overalls and wore a cap, and it looked like this person might be a railroad worker who was doing something within the rail yard. That part seemed reasonable to Ed. After all, it was a railroad yard. Still, to Ed, something was not right about the whole circumstance. He had a great view of everything going on, and so as it came closer to the time the motorcade was to arrive, he found that his eye was continuously drawn back to these two men, and he would continue to wonder what they were doing, becoming more suspicious about just what they were doing back there, behind that picket fence. These men were generally out of sight of the spectators that were lined up along the sidewalk space in the plaza, but they were clearly visible to Ed. They were close to an electrical box of some kind. The man in the overalls, that man looked like a railroad man, and Ed watched him closely, and this man kept moving, sort of pacing, back and forth between a couple of cars that were parked in that general area. To Ed, he appeared to be fidgety and nervous, which did nothing but continue to raise Ed's curiosity and suspicions. They seemed to Ed to be more interested in the fence itself than in the motorcade that might be coming. Edward referred to the man in the overalls as the train man, and to the other man in a suit as the businessman. This scene got odd enough that now Ed's eyes were just affixed to it. Then the man in the dark suit bent down and picked up something, but Ed couldn't tell what that something was. And the train man came around and squatted down beside the man in the business suit for just a little while. Then, all of a sudden, just a few seconds later, the businessman raised back up and he was holding a gun or a rifle. Ed knew this was strange, but just assumed that perhaps the man was some sort of a guard. Then he noticed that the train man was armed too with a pistol in his hand. Before Ed knew it, the motorcade was making its turn onto Elm Street, and that got his attention. But in just a moment, he would look back again at the men behind the picket fence. And then Ed saw a scene that would never leave his mind after that day in Dealey Plaza. The businessman would lift the rifle and set it over the picket fence and rest it on the pickets of the fence. Hoffman then said he saw a spark of light and a puff of fluffy white smoke. It took him a moment, but he realized it must have been a shot. He couldn't believe it. Almost immediately, the businessman turned away from the fence, and Ed saw the gun in the businessman's hands. It was a gun for sure. Ed could see the stock of it, and the color of that stock was brown. Now, the limousine itself was speeding to get out of Dealey Plaza, and it was about to go by the very spot that Ed had picked, the one he thought that would give him such a perfect view of the president right underneath the overpass. Well, it did just that, except it now would be carrying a dead president. Nobody knew it just yet, 
but that was the case. And Ed could see the damage done to the president's brain as the motorcade came by. It was shocking, and Ed thought that the president was probably dead. Ed kept his eyes on these two men, and they would work quickly, with the businessman immediately tossing the rifle over to the train man. The businessman then took off running. Ed would watch him run past parked cars as he ran north and into the railroad yards. He wanted to chase those two men, but he knew he was too far away from them to catch either one. What he watched next, from afar, was the last act of these two bad actors. Train man would break down the rifle, and once in pieces, he put the disassembled parts of the rifle inside a brown case. He, too, then started running north into the rail yards, and finally disappeared as he made his way around the caboose that was in the yard. The cars that were behind the president's limousine were now speeding through the plaza. You have to appreciate that Ed couldn't yell, and so he had to resort to whatever he could do to get someone's attention. So at this moment, he began to wave rather violently to what appeared to be a lot of Secret Service men that were following the president's limousine in another car. In the chaos of that moment, one of the Secret Service agents looked up and saw Hoffman waving wildly and immediately brandished an AR-15 rifle that the Secret Service deploys under these circumstances. Some believe that might have been Secret Service agent George Hickey. Hoffman stopped waving, but his heart didn't stop pounding. He was scared to death. He was glad he wasn't shot in that little exchange. His mind began to race. What should he do next? Upset over what he had seen, Hoffman looked around for help. He saw a Dallas policeman standing on the railroad bridge crossing Stemmons, and he walked toward him, waving his arms in an attempt to communicate what he had seen. However, the policeman, unable to understand, simply waved him off. Later, Earl Brown filed a report stating that he was on the Stemmons Railroad Bridge at the time of the assassination. However, Brown was questioned years later and said he has no recollection of seeing Hoffman. Like tragic poetry, it was to be the Secret Service that Hoffman would approach first, within seconds of the assassination, and in some ways receive the most brutal of rebuffs as they brandished an AR-15. This was the Secret Service, and they were the group of men and women that were charged with keeping the security of the president. Now that he'd been shot, they had more of a vested interest than anyone in finding the killers. As the assailant slipped behind the caboose, so went the one moment in history that perhaps the real killers, the real assassins, could have been nabbed, and the case might very well have been solved. Instead, that car with the Secret Service agent sped to the hospital in order to guard their president, who for all intents and purposes had already passed to the ages. Hoffman was in a heightened state. What should he do next, he would ask himself. He had an uncle, Robert Hoffman, who was a member of the Dallas Police Department. It was his father's brother. He would drive there to the Dallas Police Department and find his uncle and tell him what happened. Ed Hoffman backtracked, got into his car, and then drove to the Dallas Police Station where he encountered what was already the chaotic scene that naturally resulted from the events that were taking place. Some accounts of his story have him going through or driving through the railroad yards first. We will get to the impact of those variations in a minute, but for now, he had reached the Dallas police office, a deaf mute in the cacophony of that scene 
would have no luck telling a story or getting through to his uncle. And Ed knew it. From there, he would drive to the FBI offices in Dallas. But again, as you might expect, no one was home. Or at least only a few were home. And the only one that Ed got to talk to that day was a receptionist. On the day of the assassination, Hoffman left his name and his number with that receptionist at the FBI office. He never received a call back. Of course, there is no official record of that visit. Are you surprised? Ed got home that night and told his father, Frederick Hoffman, just what he had seen. Frederick Hoffman was known to be very protective of his son, basically a concerned parent, and he knew how fragile life could be for a man like Ed. In trouble of this nature, well, Ed's father knew that such matters could bring Ed himself into some very difficult and possibly dangerous circumstances. Frederick Hoffman knew that with Ed being a deaf mute, there would be issues and challenges in trying to communicate exactly what he saw and what went on. With all of this in mind, Ed's father advised him pretty matter-of-factly. He told him not to mention anything about the incident to anyone, not to talk about it in general. Ah, the exhortations of a father. Frederick Hoffman, to his dying day, would maintain that Ed never said that he saw the president be assassinated. He would maintain that the only thing Ed said was that the limousine had passed right before Ed and that the Secret Service agent had then brandished the weapon. But Ed did talk about it. He started talking about it on the day of the assassination, and he kept on talking about it afterwards. Ed maintained that he communicated with the help of his father the whole story to his Uncle Robert just a few days after the assassination. He communicated just what had happened. As I mentioned earlier, his uncle was on the Dallas police force, but nothing came of it. No report was filed. No follow-up was made. Why not, you might ask? Well, later there would be a question as to how Ed had communicated it, or how it had been translated exactly by Ed's father. Years later, his uncle would maintain that he learned of the story entirely by talking to Ed's father, because Robert did not understand sign language. So the entire interpretation relayed to Robert of what was said that day came from Ed's father, Frederick. Ed would tell his story to Uncle Robert through his father Ed's interpretation. And he would do it, as I said, just a few days after the assassination. According to his uncle, the facts that were relayed to him at the time did not contain the eyewitness account of the two men involved in the shooting. In Sloan's book, there is a passage from Robert Hoffman that I think sums it up quite well. Robert Hoffman said this, Maybe it is better that I didn't understand what he had seen. I know that Eddie's a very bright person and always has been, and can't think of any reason why he would make up something like this. It would be completely out of his character for him to change his story or to add to it at a later date. But all I knew at the time was that someone in a car had pointed a gun at him. I understood it to be a shotgun. His father was very, very concerned that Eddie knew anything about the assassination at all. It was time when suspicions were running high, and he, that is Frederick, was worried about Eddie getting involved in any way. If I had known the whole thing, I, I guess it would have been my duty as a police officer to come forward 
with the information, and I imagine Chief Curry would, would have liked to have known about it, but as a relative, I would have probably have felt pretty much like Eddie's father felt. It just wasn't a time for loose statements that couldn't be proved or backed up with any evidence. <laughs> well, there you have it. I think it's pretty clear that Robert, as well as Frederick, heard the real story, the whole story, at or very near the time of the assassination. For their own very personal reasons, some of which are totally understandable, the concerns related to Ed's safety and the safety of the other family members, they may have done their best to stay silent and used Ed's handicap, his inability to tell it himself like it was, in his own words. They used that as the modus operandi to ignore. Years later, a number of members of Ed's family would state pretty emphatically that they felt both Robert and Frederick knew the truth, knew the truth about what Ed saw, and they knew it all along from the moment of the assassination. Those two lied to protect Ed. And those family members can say that for one reason, because Ed told them the story, the real story, on the day of the assassination. His wife, Rosie, corroborates the story. You see, as she tells it, Ed came home that night and he told her the whole thing. And he told his father, and he also told one of his best friends, Lucien Pierce. They all heard it on the day of the assassination. And Rosie says, Ed came home and said he had seen the whole thing, that he had actually seen the man fire the shot that killed the president. I could tell by Ed's face that it had really happened the way he said. Lucian Pierce is also on record corroborating Ed Hoffman's story. He came straight to where I was working and started telling me about it. He told me about seeing the man shoot the gun and then seeing the other man take the gun apart. I was shocked and surprised at what he was saying, but I didn't have any doubt whether he had actually seen it. He was terribly upset, and he kept repeating the story over and over. I knew he wanted to tell the police or the FBI, but I could tell he was afraid. And he told others, too, particularly others at his workplace at Texas Instruments. Ed couldn't keep the story out of his mind. It was horrific in nature including everything he had seen. Eventually, after several years went by, his workmates at Texas Instruments urged him to try one more time to tell his story to the FBI. What happens next is part of the classic story that is the JFK assassination. The elegant taking of testimony, the misinterpretation of witness statements, this time somewhat understandable, the basic revision of the story to fit the narrative, and the ultimate disbelief that then occurs as a result, both by the witnesses and others, and just perpetuates the unbelievable. And Ed's story is just that, unbelievable. Whether it was true or not, it just had all the makings of hyperbole, and especially being told by a deaf mute, and officially received some four years after the assassination. Many of you have heard the Ed Hoffman story before, and chances are that you may have heard a slight variation in details on exactly what he saw. There is at least one version that includes the placement of the gun or the gun case into the electrical box itself. 
the puff of smoke seen by others, a fact that gets corroboration from the railroad men, but in this instance, so far after the fact, seems like a trite borrowing of a detail. A detail from another story. Well, in just a minute, I will get to all the objections to the details in his testimony. And there are many. But here is what happens next as Hoffman begins to try and tell his story to the FBI. The first of those interviews happens on June 28, 1967. And please, don't get up to go to the bathroom. This interview happened so quickly that it's probably not long enough to take the place of a commercial break. And its contents are tragically Shakespearean in nature. As far as the fate of testimony on this topic from a deaf mute given to the FBI, and on a day when Hoffman appeared for the discussion without the help of one friend or one official sign language interpreter from the FBI. They were clearly just going through the motions, at least at this moment. In fairness to the FBI, though, they did request that Ed write down in detail on paper actually what happened and bring that to the interview. Ed was not a good writer and did not have a good grasp of English, given his condition. And sadly, no one around him helped Ed with that either, which, honestly, to all of us, is an astonishing lack of support by those around him, but especially given the number of strongly corroborating witnesses. It is almost inconceivable why, at least at this point, one of them did not perform the obvious. Help him write it down in the clearest of King's English, his own story that would have withstood the rigor of the legal system, the place where it would ultimately end up. So obviously end up. So, Maybe it's because they just, well, all of them wanted to let the dead dog lie, or maybe just didn't want to get too closely involved with it all. But the good news is that later, after this episode, some of his close friends would redeem themselves on that front. But let's save that for now. I'll get to that in just a minute. For now, here it is, the 1967 version of what was transcripted after he met with the FBI. It goes like this. On June 26, 1967, Mr. Jim Dowdy, 725 Macklemore, Texas, advised that a deaf mute, Virgil E. Hoffman, who is employed at Texas Instruments, had indicated he wanted to furnish information to agents of the Federal Bureau of Investigation regarding the assassination of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. It was pointed out to Mr. Dowdy that Hoffman should put in writing, in detail, everything he saw the day of the assassination. On June 28, 1967, Virgil E. Hoffman appeared at the Dallas office of the FBI and advised he resided at 424 Grand Prairie Road, in Grand Prairie, Texas, and he was employed at Texas Instruments, Dallas. He said he parked his automobile near the railroad tracks on Stemmons Freeway in Elm Street about 12 o'clock noon on November 22, 1963. Hoffman said he was standing a few feet south of the railroad on Stemmons Freeway when the motorcade passed him, taking President Kennedy to Parkland Hospital. Hoffman said he observed two white males clutching something dark to their chests with both hands running from the rear of the Texas School Book Depository building. The men were running north on the railroad, then turned east, and Hoffman lost sight of both of the men. 
The FBI report would go on to say that approximately two hours after the above interview with Hoffman, he returned to the Dallas office of the FBI and advised he had just returned from the spot on Stemmons Freeway where he had parked his automobile and had decided he could not have seen the men running because of a fence west of the Texas School Book Depository building. He said it was possible that he saw these two men on the fence or something else. Hoffman said the only description he could furnish of the men was that one of them wore a white shirt. He stated he had discussed this matter with his father at the time of the assassination, and his father suggested that he not talk to anyone about this. But after thinking about what he saw, Hoffman stated that he decided to tell the FBI. Don't you just love it? This is the kind of report that could easily be taken and just filed away. Maybe they could have even just thrown it away. It doesn't say anything, and it surely doesn't say what he said to his relatives and his best friend on the day of the assassination. And no one in the FBI could be blamed for anything more than an I-don't-give-a-damn attitude on this one. Right? There was no interpreter there, and so what was the best that anyone could expect that would have come out of that session? Especially if you are the FBI and if you don't want to know anyway. Well, then on this one, just don't send down an expert interpreter. It's that simple. No one is lying. No one is not telling the truth in this report. And where were Ed's family and friends? How could he have gone to this alone? Where were they? Shame on them all. Really makes you want to throw up on a number of different levels. But really, they did redeem themselves later. I'll get to those parts in a moment. Now, about a week later, on July 6, 1967, the FBI files another report apparently trying to follow up on what they had just heard the week before and determine if there was any credibility to it. Or maybe just put a note in the file that takes an already disfigured set of facts taken down the week before and then completely shuts them down with the following statement. For listeners, this one too is so short that it doesn't constitute a commercial break either, so don't leave yet. Here, I'll read it quickly for you. The FBI report starts out with this line. Virgil E. Hoffman was not interviewed prior to June 28, 1967. On July 6, 1967, Roy S. Truly, manager of the Texas School Book Depository, advised there is a fence approximately six feet tall running from the parking lot west of the Texas School Book Depository for about 150 feet to the north of the Texas School Book Depository. This fence was constructed approximately two years prior to the assassination and has not been moved to date. On July 5, 1967, Mr. E. Hoffman, father of Virgil E. Hoffman, and Fred Hoffman, brother of Virgil Hoffman, were interviewed at 428 West Main Street, Grand Prairie, Texas. Both advised that Virgil Hoffman had been a deaf mute his entire life and has, in the past, distorted facts of events observed by him. Both the father and the brother stated that Virgil Hoffman loved President Kennedy and had mentioned to them just after the assassination that he, Virgil Hoffman, was standing on the freeway near the Texas School Book Depository at the time of the assassination. 
Virgil Hoffman told him that he saw numerous men running after the president was shot. The father of Virgil Hoffman stated that he did not believe that his son had seen anything of value and doubted he had observed any men running from the Texas School Book Depository. And for this reason, he had not mentioned it to the FBI. That same FBI report contains another note at the end, and it's as follows. Virgil E. Hoffman, a deaf mute employed by Texas Instruments, Dallas, Texas, advised agents of our Dallas office that immediately following the assassination, he observed two white males running from the rear of the Texas School Book Depository building. Males were allegedly clutching something dark. Two hours after the furnishing of this information, Hoffman returned to our Dallas office and advised he had reobserved the area where he allegedly saw the two men and decided he could not have seen the man running because of an intervening fence. <laughs> no doubt this report was intended to put this whole thing to bed, take a mildly exciting report at best, and certainly after misinterpretation of the facts, I might add, and then in this report add that his own father doubted the story. Well, that should do it, right? Case closed on this piece of evidence. Well, hang on, not quite. You see, regardless of what the FBI was putting in these first couple of reports, they were still interested in this curious man, Ed Hoffman, and what he had really seen. Perhaps it wasn't because they were truly interested. Maybe it was because of a series of events that occurred next in the Ed Hoffman story. You see, regardless of what Ed Hoffman saw, there was plenty of doubt accumulating right after November 22, 1963, and certainly it accelerated after the Warren Commission report was issued in September 1964. Plenty of doubt about who did it and for what reasons, and doubt about the official version of the truth about a lone gunman, as published by the government. Years would go by, but Ed couldn't get the story off of his own mind. He just couldn't. He was living with information about the truth of the murder of the President of the United States. Then in 1977, he wrote to Senator Ted Kennedy regarding what he saw, hoping to rekindle interest in finding the truth out about what really happened that day. As you might expect, he received back an elegantly written response, penned, I am sure, by someone in Senator Kennedy's office, replete with the political response and social sensitivities that a letter of this kind, by its nature, must contain. I'm not criticizing it. I'm just reminding us all how the world works in high places, no matter what they might have thought or said in private inside the Kennedy compound. You would neither see or hear about their thoughts on the real truth regarding the assassination. Let me read to you the reply sent from Senator Kennedy to Ed Hoffman. Dear Mr. Hoffman, My family has been aware of various theories concerning the death of President Kennedy, just as it has been aware of the many speculative accounts which have arisen from the death of Robert Kennedy. I am sure that it is understood that the continual speculation is painful for members of my family. We have always accepted the findings of the Warren Commission report and have no reason to question the quality and the effort of those who investigated the fatal shooting of Robert Kennedy. 
Our feeling is that if there is sufficient evidence to reexamine the circumstance concerning the deaths of President Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, this judgment would have to be made by the legal authorities responsible for such further examination. I do not believe that their judgment should be influenced by any feelings or discomfort by any member of my family. Sincerely, Ted Kennedy. Initially, Ed said he was stunned and couldn't understand why the response was what it was from Senator Kennedy. He felt crushed and that it was all so hopeless. Ed Hoffman would make a pact with himself to spread the word for the rest of his life and try to make what he had seen common knowledge. Perhaps his letter to Senator Kennedy triggered it, perhaps a combination of other factors, including the continued encouragement by Hoffman's Texas Instrument Associates. Sloan, in his own book, tells that story well, and I will tell that in his own words from a passage in that book. This is what he says. Once again, Hoffman's TI Associates encouraged Hoffman to return to the FBI to get his story on record. Sloan did interview Tom Cordner, who told Sloan that he first met Hoffman in the early 1970s. Cordner was a friend of Hoffman that Sloan interviewed and that also speaks sign language. And Cordner recounted for Sloan that Hoffman began talking with him about the assassination soon after they met. We spoke frequently. There is a communication barrier there, and the better one gets to know someone, who signs, that is, the less the barrier becomes. If you weren't familiar with Eddie or anyone who speaks sign language, you could make some mistakes in communication. The puff of smoke and the men running, he's told me over and over again and very consistently. Always the same way. Because Hoffman felt that he was misunderstood in 1967, he wanted to return to the FBI. Mr. Cordner helped to set up the FBI interview, which was originally to take place on April 5, 1977. This time, Hoffman was ready. Hoffman brought with him a letter written by Texas Instruments Associate Richard Freeman, who translated Hoffman's story. This letter is very similar to the version Hoffman told to Sloan in 1992. However, there are some minor discrepancies in detail, but overall the same story is conveyed. So the FBI took up another round of investigating the story of Ed Hoffman, and a conversation began to develop between Ed Hoffman and Special Agent Udo Specht and others. At one point, Hoffman and Specht both traveled to the spot where Hoffman stood that day on November 22nd to recount what had happened. This time, the story was more robust, more like what was corroborated by others to have occurred that day in Dallas. And the FBI report this time around contains, for the first time, a description of the two men involved. Perhaps this interview in 1977 was the first step in developing the story of Ed Hoffman into a legitimate story of conspiracy about the JFK assassination, some 14 years after the assassination itself occurred. Maybe the grip of terror that surrounded the event and drove the narrative was, perhaps, beginning to slip away in favor of the truth. Let me read to you that report filed by Udo Specht. On March 28, 1977, Richard H. Freeman, Texas Instruments, Richardson, Texas, was telephonically contacted by a special agent, name redacted, 
and was requested to contact Mr. Hoffman in an effort to communicate with him and to advise him if he could come to the Dallas FBI office in order to make a personal visit to the area of Stemmons Freeway from where he observed the presidential motorcade on November 22, 1963. On March 28, 1977, Virgil E. Hoffman accompanied special agent, name redacted, to Stemmons Freeway, also known as Interstate Highway 35, North Dallas, Texas. Hoffman communicated that he was driving a 1962 Ford Falcon on November 22, 1963. He parked his car on the west shoulder of Stemmons Freeway at the northbound lane near the Texas and Pacific Railroad overpass, the one that crosses Stemmons Freeway. He could not see the presidential motorcade as it was proceeding west on Elm Street toward the triple underpass. He saw the motorcade speed up as it emerged on Stemmons Freeway heading north. His line of vision was due east, looking from Stemmons Freeway toward the Texas School Book Depository Building. The two men he saw were behind the wooden fence above the grassy knoll north of Elm Street and just before the triple underpass. He indicated he saw smoke in that vicinity and saw the man with a rifle disassembling the rifle near some type of railroad track control box located close to the railroad tracks. Both men ran north on the railroad tracks. He tried to get the attention of a Dallas policeman who was standing on the railroad overpass that crosses Stemmons Freeway. But since he could not yell, he could not communicate with the policeman. He drove his car north on Stemmons Freeway after the motorcade passed him in an effort to find the two men, but he lost sight of them. Special agent, name redacted, took color photographs from the area of Stemmons Freeway where Hoffman was watching the presidential motorcade on November 22, 1963. Photographs were also taken of the area north of the grassy knoll where the wooden fence is located and the area adjacent to it, which is now primarily used as a parking lot. The distance from where Mr. Hoffman was viewing the motorcade on Stemmons Freeway to the area behind the wooden fence is estimated at approximately 105 yards, with the elevation being approximately the same height as the first floor of the Texas School Book Depository Building. Photographs were taken with a Bessler Topcon camera using Kodak Veracolor 2 Type S film with a distance setting of infinitive f-stop 14 and film speed of 1 125th of a second. Signed, Udo H. Specht. Sloan would sum up in his book what the sum total of the FBI's on-the-ground view of Hoffman was after the 1977 interview. This is what Sloan stated that Specht said. Special Agent Udo H. Specht conducted the 1977 interview and later stated he, meaning Hoffman, seemed very conscientious and I was convinced that he believed what he was saying. But I also know that people's minds sometimes register something different than what they have actually seen. Seeds can be planted in a person's mind that may fester over the years into an obsession. I spent quite a lot of time with Hoffman. I didn't make it my life's work, but I did devote some extra time to check out his story and taking pictures of the site. And I reported everything to Washington. That was about as much as I could do. Specht also harbored some additional feelings about Ed, thinking that Ed might have some 
psychological problems. Perhaps this concern was spurred on mostly by the excited manner in which Ed would deliver the story in the moments where he would try to communicate things. That is, at least the theory of one close friend of Ed's at work who was interviewed by Sloan. He said it was easy to misinterpret his actions that way, but this and many other friends attested to the long-term stability of this man, a deaf mute who was forced to live and go about life every day in the world of men and women who hear and talk. By this time, multiple versions of Ed's stories were out there. The FBI reports and what was contained in both Crossfire, written by Mars, and then Sloan's book and much controversy over the differences in what was being said in each of those versions, and the so-called enhancements that might have come about over the years as Ed's story progressed. There was a need to clear the air, and so Ed, with the help of others, would set out to write his own account. It was entitled, Eyewitness. Eyewitness purports to be the first time a published version of his story had been translated back to Mr. Hoffman, in American Sign Language, allowing him to check it for accuracy. Ed himself collaborated with Ron Friedrich, his translator-slash-editor, in writing a 75-page book that detailed his experiences on and after November 22, 1963. Eyewitness was made available through JFK Lancer Productions and Publications. Let's backtrack for a minute. Ed Hoffman and his followers were hopeful. The House Select Committee had been formed and Ed was expected to be called as a witness. He had not been called as a witness at the time of the Warren Commission. At that time, he was not even known to authorities as a witness. Now would be his time to tell his story, as challenging as that may be for a deaf mute on center stage for all the world to hear. But it was not to be. He was never called to testify in front of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, even though by that time his story was fairly publicized and known to the investigators at the committee. As much as we want to believe Ed's story, it has some technical or factual problems with it. Whether they result from real problems with his testimony or whether they just don't add up for other reasons unrelated to Ed's transcripted versions, we may never know. And keep in mind the translation of what he saw from his own thoughts through the eye of the needle that is a deaf and mute man has its inherent perils. And those that are charged with sifting through and evaluating evidence, well, they must succumb to this basic fact, regardless of where you end up in your own search to determine the truth about this matter. What does seem to be very clear there were many that vouched for this man's character and his intelligence. He just wasn't the type of man to make things up, to lie, or exaggerate. He was never a seeker of fame or even a nickel of fortune relating to the JFK assassination. In fact, he would insist on rejecting even reimbursement for mileage when he was sometimes asked to speak at a JFK conference. And in my opinion, the character of the witness always has to be taken into consideration and how that assessment affects your ability to accept that they are telling the truth under oath or not. I said that as a prelude because still that does not preclude the critical analysis of the evidence at hand. So let's spend a few minutes with the comments featured by Professor McAdams and his followers 
concerning the technical problems that are inherent within Ed Hoffman's testimony. So here they are. They are a compilation of facts by M. Duke Lane, written in 2007. They are impressive as an analytical analysis of why Ed's story may not be true, or at least have some portions that are hard to reconcile with other known facts that have been presented as part of the JFK case. You should read the full article itself to understand the objections in a more comprehensive way. But I'll include a few of the more prominent ones from his analysis, ones that I believe to be more relevant, and of course, at the same time, offer why I am not so in favor of the conclusion, if that be the case on any one of them. Lane attached a moniker to his work, and he called it Freeway Man, perhaps innocently and in concert with the simple monikers used by Ed Hoffman to describe the two men behind the fence, businessman and railroad man. Or maybe it was perhaps a more sardonic title written by someone more skeptical after analytically determining his conclusions. It's but another example of the interesting dynamics that have evolved between witnesses and skeptics over the years. Sadly, that aspect is far away from determining the truth in the JFK case, but very close to the ever-present dynamics that occur in the relationships among the men here on Earth. So without any further wander, let's look at the short list I've composed from that material. First, we know that there is one witness well known to the Warren Commission and us as jurors that had a bird's eye view of that same area behind the picket fence, but from another vantage point. That witness was Lee Bowers, the tower operator located in the railroad yard. He is a credible witness that supplied testimony to the Warren Commission under oath, and Hoffman critics point out discrepancies between Bowers' testimony and Hoffman's testimony. Bowers cited the two men behind the picket fence, only he described them pretty distinctly as appearing to be unrelated to one another, and offered no testimony that stated or implied that they might be working together, quite the opposite of the description that Hoffman gave. Bowers gave a detailed description of what they were wearing, and the businessman in his scenario did not have a jacket on, yet Hoffman describes the man as wearing a jacket. There are other discrepancies noted in their clothing descriptions, but I won't go into those. Hoffman never mentioned the three cars that Bowers described in detail as having entered the parking lots in the few minutes prior to the assassination. At least two of them seem to have made their way into the area during the same time frames that Hoffman describes that he was there and viewing the action behind the fence. Yet he didn't mention them at all in his earlier accounts. Later, almost embarrassed, Hoffman would mention seeing some of these cars, saying he didn't understand or believe they were relevant until he heard their significance, as told in other testimony, but that he had seen them. Hmm. Interesting. Critics go after Hoffman for stating that there was a train that he insists passed over the triple underpass immediately after the shooting and which completely obstructed his view by the time the president's limousine passed him. They say the photographic evidence, and namely the McIntyre photo, shows that no train was present at that moment in the plaza. They offer as further evidence that the security for the event gave instructions in advance to the railroads that instructed them all to eliminate traffic on the overpasses everywhere it might intersect with the motorcade during the period the president was scheduled to be en route. Yet there is plenty of evidence, and some of it by patrolmen, 
supporting that indeed there were trains that were moving over the overpass and into the yard right at that time. Dallas Police Patrolman J.C. White offered some evidence of that in his testimony, as did Patrolman J.W. Foster. Personally, it might be appropriate for someone to reanalyze their conclusions about the timing of the McIntyre photo. I'm just saying. Critics also cite the lack of involvement from other close relatives and friends during the 1967 FBI interviews, citing in not so many words that it is tantamount to lack of support for the narrative. Now, while that group of people may not have been doing quite the right thing at that moment, it hardly constitutes a reason to not believe Ed Hoffman's story. Sure, it's somewhat hard to believe that they didn't get involved then, but they made up for it later. Those same critics make the same argument about his 1977 interview with the FBI, where Richard Freeman acted as a go-between, citing Freeman's involvement in the setting up of the interview and then absence in the interview itself. When some criticized the final version of that FBI report, Hoffman's critics again wondered why he hadn't taken the steps to ensure that these trusted confidants were there all the way through the process. Hard to argue that they shouldn't have been, but again, how does this play into the conclusion that what he has been saying all along is not true? It might aggravate you, but it's nothing but a red herring in that regard. They criticized Hoffman about his first FBI interview, citing the idea that he was told to bring a precise written statement, and he did not, leaving the FBI to try and decipher what this deaf mute was trying to say to them. A fair point by the critics and by the FBI, but still not evidence that he was not telling them the truth, and not even evidence that his story was changing. In fact, probably given his circumstance, what this really is, well, it's evidence supporting that the lack of available interpreters is indeed part of the issue associated with different official versions of the story evolving within the FBI reports that were prepared in 1967 and then in 1977. Critics point to the fact that Dallas Police Patrolman Joe Murphy was assigned to the coverage of the overpass. In his testimony to the Warren Commission, he stated that he had an explicit order to keep all spectators off the overpass on the Stemmons. And they did just that at the time of the motorcade, according to his testimony his testimony to the Warren Commission, that is, and it's pretty clear what he said. Murphy claims that there was no one up there at that moment. That would preclude Hoffman from having pulled over, gotten out of his car, walked the 100 feet, and hung out for the next 20 minutes. Well, all I can say is this is the same Joe Murphy that was involved in the Julia Mercer matter that you just listened to a few episodes ago. He didn't see anything then either. Critics of the lone assassin theory would tell you that Murphy might have a middle name. And for any of you that have watched Hogan's Heroes, a show that was popular in the 1960s, well, Murphy might be a Schultze. Remember, he was the character that would declare, I see nothing. I know nothing. I'm just saying that these two testimonies are at odds with one another. And either Hoffman was not there and he is lying, or Murphy was mistaken. Don't just take Murphy's word for it. According to Murphy, there were other cops stationed on the Stemmons, just ahead and behind of where Hoffman purportedly was. Critics say that not one of them reported anyone on that bridge. 
For the Stemmons, specifically, it was officers E.V. Brown, J.C. White, and J.A. Lomax. Oh, and critics also cite that Murphy, from where he was standing, could confirm that Hoffman could have seen what he said he saw, at least when it came to confirming angle of view. Murphy had almost the same view from where he was standing, but they also say that Murphy positively testified that at the time of the shooting, he scanned the area, including the railroad yard, and saw no activity. No one dashing away and did not see the two men in question that Hoffman so vividly describes. These critics offer this as further proof that what Murphy did not see must not have taken place and therefore must not have happened. Of course, in a larger sense, they criticized the change in some of the details of Ed's story, saying that supporters attribute it solely to the challenges in interpreting sign language that occurred under all the official circumstances and still others criticize it as the creep of the story with new details emerging over time that were not present in prior versions, perhaps acquired and not originated. The Lane analysis goes into more depth on these and other topics, and it's worth reading. I have included the reference in the blog for episode 45. Check it out on our website at www.podcastjfk.com. In the more visceral criticisms of vanity, some critics of Ed Hoffman just cite the need for 15 minutes of fame. Maybe. But for me, I find this one of the hardest to swallow out of the humble pie being served up about him. And I say this because that was echoed by so many that knew him. Finally, critics also cite that it's a well-documented fact that Ed Hoffman read voraciously about the assassination. Indeed, it is impossible to judge what Ed Hoffman actually did know on November 22nd and what he'd learned afterward. And Sloan tells us that Ed read every article and devoured every published detail about the case, an assertion not disputed by Ed in his book, The Eyewitness. We, therefore, can presume that Ed had at least a more than cursory knowledge of the assassination, whether he'd seen any part of it or not. Critics will tell you that his initially simple narrative may have taken on more embellishment over the years as Ed learned more about the assassination details. How much changed from day one? Well, we may never know. Oh, and there's one more thing. Folks wonder why, when the railroad men dashed so quickly into the railroad yard and they didn't see any of these men dashing away, well, I think I have said enough on the counterclaim of Ed Hoffman's story. Sadly, Ed passed away in March 2010. He was 73 years old. Like so many of the witnesses of that era, they are leaving us now, and we cannot ask them just one more time what they really meant and what they really said and what they really saw with their own eyes. Now, their story belongs to the ages. It is now time for you, the jury, to make the call on this one. Please be sure to go to the website at www.podcastjfk.com for more materials on this topic 
click on the menu and choose the option related to episodes. Scroll down to episode 45 and take advantage of the links to the extra content. Seeing is believing, and watching Ed Hoffman pantomime his story will give you a sense of Ed himself. And there are a few surprises in the link to one of his talks that we have included, a 2001 presentation for a group of high school students in Dallas. Thank you for listening to episode 45 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 